You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This week, I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. It was another week of What'd You Miss from home. Now, throughout the week, President Trump intensified his confrontation with China. It all came to a head on Friday afternoon with a Rose Garden press conference. There, the president vowed to punish Beijing for the coronavirus pandemic, as well as its plans to curb Hong Kong's autonomy. Trump said the U.S. would begin a process to revoke Hong Kong's preferential trade status under U.S. law and deny visas to Chinese officials. We got insight from Bonnie Glazer, senior advisor for Asia and director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. We began by asking Bonnie how damaging these moves would be to the U.S.-China relationship. Well, the president certainly used sweeping rhetoric and condemned China's national security laws that are now going to be written and enacted uh, against Hong Kong. But he was unclear about what measures will be taken by the United States uh, against China and potentially against Hong Kong. He did say that uh, there will be some special privileges uh, that Hong Kong has that are likely to be eliminated, and he specifically mentioned uh, the extradition treaty. He talked about potential limits on dual-use technology, but he said that there would be exceptions. Uh, He also mentioned export controls, and he said that the State Department will adjust its travel advisory for citizens going to Hong Kong. But he was not concrete about when these actions will take place um, and how comprehensive they will be. He didn't mention removing Hong Kong's special trading status. Yeah, the lack of details, I mean, uh, is definitely concerning. And I'm wondering whether, uh, Bonnie, you see it as a a factor or an issue uh, for folks who are doing business either in Hong Kong or with Hong Kong in some manner, uh, whether they just stick around and just wait this out and wait for those details or whether they just kind of pack up and move on. Well, I think it's going to depend. There will be some people who may... uh, 
see the handwriting on the wall and companies who decide that now is the time to lead. But uh, my expectation is people are going to wait for a while. They're going to try and see exactly what the United States is going to do. Uh, are other countries going to follow? Uh, China will probably enact this law over the next couple of months, and then we move into a phase of implementation. What are the Chinese actually going to do? So my guess is a large number of companies are going to want to wait it out. The problem now between uh, China and the U.S. and the rhetoric that we have is that we're in a cycle where every action or announcement demands a response. Um, and this can ratchet up very quickly to something that is difficult for either side to back down from. Do you see any path to a graceful off-ramp, any way for either side to, using a Chinese phrase and a Chinese expression, get off the stage and still save face? Well, it's possible maybe after the presidential elections. I don't see it happening sooner. Uh, I think for President Trump, uh, China is a, a useful target to blame, uh, a punching bag he can use as he runs for re-election and tries to distract attention away from his own performance in stopping the spread of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. And for Xi Jinping, uh, he has a domestic audience. Uh, and he has to be tough on the United States. So there will be actions that will be taken uh, against the United States if the U.S. Uh, imposes sanctions on Chinese officials and entities, which yeah. was also mentioned by President Trump today. Uh, you know, I'm curious, Bonnie, we talk a lot about the U.S.-China relationship from the perspective of the U.S. for obvious reasons, because we're, we're here, and this idea of what the U.S. wants, what Trump wants. Do we have any real sense here of what Xi Jinping wants out of its relationship with the U.S.? Well, for many years, the United States has been a top priority uh, for China, of course, even before Xi Jinping, but continuing through Xi Jinping's presidency. China has benefited from a stable and predictable relationship with the United States. And President Trump um, has really pulled out the rug uh, from under Xi Jinping uh, on that score. And so uh, it seems to me that the, the Chinese are questioning whether or not it is possible to have a stable relationship with the United States going forward. And I think there are some people in China who are saying that uh, this may be impossible. And when it comes to core interests, and of course, Hong Kong is one of those, Taiwan is, uh, Xinjiang, um, that China should not attach much weight to U.S. Um, uh, statements and policies going forward, that it just has to do what serves China's own interests. So it kind of disregards whatever the U.S. has to say about any of these uh, core interests. Um, what do people get wrong the most when it comes to China's intent with Taiwan? And I ask this because uh, the one country, two systems that uh, President Trump uh, denounced as really one country, one system is something that China has been trying to uh, sweeten um, Taiwan with or, or trying to pitch to Taiwan with limited success, of course. Well, I, I think that uh, there's been a lot of statements uh, over the course of this week with the National People's Congress in Beijing and some uh, fears that China was revising its policy toward Taiwan and dropping its goal of peaceful unification. But at the end of the day, uh, I think what is clear is that uh, Xi Jinping is not in a, in a phase now. It's not in his interest to to uh, re uh, to, to change that that strategy, uh, China still hopes to 
implement some version of one country, two systems in Taiwan. It still wants to rely on its uh, relationship with uh, the KMT and its cons- the consensus that was reached back in 1992 that both sides of the strait are part of one China. So I think a lot of people believe that China is poised to, to use military uh, um, uh, weapons to attack Taiwan. I just don't think that that is going to happen in the near term. It's on the table. It's an option, absolutely. But an attack on Taiwan, I think, would be extraordinarily detrimental to PRC interests at this particular point in time. And so I don't see a change in China's strategy. Then we got perspective on how the rising tensions are weighing on currency markets. Win Thin, global head of currency strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman, joined us outlining the best and worst-case scenarios for investors. Well, uh, I think the worst-case scenario is we go back to uh, trade, uh, trade restrictions. You know, we, we had a taste of this back in, throughout 2019. Uh, we had the so-called uh, you know, a trade war between the two largest countries and in, in economies in the world. Uh, I fear that's, what we'll, that's sort of the worst case we can go back to. You know, obviously, the last time we had tariffs during a, a a recession, well, that was back in the Great Depression with the Smoot-Hawley Act. So that's really, you know, the last thing the, the global economy needs right now is another round of, of uh, trade tensions and tariffs and restrictions and what have you. That's the worst case. Um, the best case is we, we get some sort of uh, limited um, action, and we've already gotten a taste of that. You probably saw overnight they, they, um, the U.S. is talking about uh, expelling uh, Chinese students that have ties to the PLA, um, you know, some other, uh, you know, sort of, to me, are what, somewhat minor. But the problem with these kind of, these sort of tensions that, is that tempers can flare, accidents happen, misunderstandings happen, and, and I fear that this is going to really turn into much more of a tit-for-tat thing. Again, this was okay in 2019 when the global economy was, for the most part, strong. But when we are in a global recession, this is the last thing we need. So, I mean, then how do you prepare for this? And, and, and as, as uh, and I'm talking from an investment perspective, uh, when, uh, and for those folks out there who are trying to prepare for this or trying to trade off of this, I guess the question it becomes is how much can an escalation on a political level actually translate into some sort of uh, pain on it, some sort of economic or financial level, given that tariffs are already in place and they're already relatively high? Of course. Um, again, the problem is that it's escalating something even deeper. Uh, and I think, again, the, the key factor is that this is coming at a time when, when we are already in global recession. So really, we have just no margin for error. Uh, you know, we, we saw, again, uh, we saw how uh, significantly the markets can be impacted by this sort of measure uh, back throughout 2019. You know, as you know, we're a lot of headline-driven uh, stock rallies and stock sell-offs due to, the, due to really tensions between the U.S. and China. So to me, this is almost a, a, a replay of that, uh, again, at, at a, coming at a much worse time. Uh, for this part, I have to say China has been um, very quiet. They really have not responded uh, back in force. Uh, I think part of that was the fact that the, the Chinese leadership was going into the, the, the National People's Congress last weekend and didn't want to roil the markets. But I think now that's out of the way. Uh, I think the gloves are off. I think the Hong Kong move was, was just the beginning. It was an indirect confrontation. Hmm. But I expect much more direct confrontation coming forward. And again, this, this can easily spill over from the political realm into the economic realm. And into the financial markets realm as well, because um, we've seen the offshore yuan, for instance, uh, fall to record lows, and it's holding right around there right now. Um, is that the best way to see the, the tensions reflected in financial markets through pairs like the offshore yuan? 
Well, it's funny you say that, Scarlett. I think at this point it's the only way you can see it. And, you know, I think myself and many other investment professionals are, are really quite frankly bewildered that the markets are shrugging this off so far. If you look at the equity market, you wouldn't think there's U.S.-China tensions. If you look at the Hong Kong dollar, you wouldn't think there was any tensions between China and Hong Kong. You know, really, the, the only way it's being reflected right now is, is in the yuan, um, and it, which is it's puzzling. Uh, so to me, that's sort of the canary in the coal mine. Um, we've had Aussie dollars start to, start to weaken a bit, too, because they're having tensions with China. So I would say those are the two pairs to watch. Uh, I, I do think they are the leaders, and, and that the, you know, if, if, things, if these tensions do ratchet up, uh, I think most of the other markets will, will sort of revert to form. Equity should soften. Emerging markets should soften. Um, you know, all the sort of risk assets would soften. Japanese yen, Swiss franc probably uh, would gain in this scenario, and the dollar as well. And, and just how much of a defense, though, do you think uh, we're going to see uh, the PBLC make on the, on the yuan beyond what it's done already? Well, that's the interesting thing. Um, to its credit, again, China, the policymakers have really been trying to, to tamp down on turmoil. Um, so, yes, the, 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 the yuan is weakening. Um, but they've been fixing the, the yuan, you know, sort of stronger than the model to suggest. So they're not feeding into uh, the yuan weakness. They're, they're sort of leaning against it. I think that would open up a whole new set of uh, can of worms. But, um, but the markets, uh, as you can see through CNH, that's uh, freely tradable, um, you know, believe uh, otherwise. And they've been taking dollar uh, CNH much higher um, on the expectation that these tensions are going to, to worsen. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This was supposed to be a historic week for SpaceX and still could be on Saturday. The company founded by Elon Musk was looking to make history on Wednesday with NASA. The plan was for two astronauts to take off for the International Space Station, marking the first launch of U.S. astronauts into space from domestic soil in almost nine years and SpaceX's first manned mission into space. But Florida's storm weather forecast got in the way and the flight was delayed until Saturday afternoon. We got reaction from Sean Casey, Vice President for Business Development at Atlas Space Operations. Sean is also co-founder of the Silicon Valley Space Center. We started by asking what exactly has to happen to ensure a safe launch. Um, there are usually just a couple of criteria that are the launch weather criteria, and they are uh, activities that are within five to ten miles of the launch site. And that includes lightning and freezing temperatures. Today's launch was scrubbed because of electric fields electric field intensity, which is usually a precursor to, uh, to lightning. And so the launch was scrubbed just uh, right before we started the liquid oxygen load because we already had RP-1 uh, loaded on the vehicle, which is the basic petroleum fuel, and uh, liquid oxygen is the oxidizer. So the last thing you want is to have a lightning strike mm. with a fully loaded vehicle, and that's why they canceled today's, uh, today's mission and rescheduled it for May 30th. And we had seen um, headlines earlier this afternoon from NASA saying that the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket was already fueled. Do they have to undo everything and redo everything um, in the next attempt, or can they kind of 
I don't know. I mean, this is a dumb question, but just put a cover on it and and be ready to go on Saturday. No, this this is a a unique thing about the Falcon Nine is that it's fueled right before launch, and this was a point of contention with NASA and SpaceX. Um, the RP One is uh, is started just within thirty minutes, and then you know the last sixteen minutes is when they load the liquid oxygen. What they're going to do is they're going to offload the fuel, and then once they offload the fuel, then it's safe for people to approach uh, approach the vehicle. So, Sean, when we talk about just kind of the historic nature of this, I mean, obviously you kind of, kind of have to go back to the 50s, the creation of NASA and the space race and uh, putting a man on the moon in the 60s, and, of course, uh, the shuttle program. NASA, at this point, appears to have ceded uh, most of the development of uh, the physical uh, aspect of getting folks and things into space to private companies, whether it's SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, or whoever. Is this, are we pretty much committed to this as a nation, that the future of U.S. space flight and U.S. space involvement is going to be driven by the technology that these private companies provide? Well, I like to look at it in terms of, in terms of risk and what private companies know. You know, we had 50 years of NASA's cost-plus contracts where it was very hard to assess, it was very hard to assess the risk associated with a particular mission. For going to low Earth orbit, you know, we did it for Gemini and the Mercury, the Gemini and the Apollo uh, Apollo programs, and for the and for the shuttle. So there's a lot of institute, industry knowledge about what's required uh, uh, to do this. So I think for those programs where uh, investors can assess risk. Then uh, that makes uh, that, that's kind of the foundations of putting your money forward in a private company as as an investment, like what you see in SpaceX and Virgin Orbit and uh, and Blue and Blue Origin. There are going to be those programs that are still inherently risky, where NASA is going to have to absorb the risk, and I expect those kinds of programs are going to be cost plus programs because private industry has a hard time assessing the risk. Hmm. But for these programs, like hmm. what we're seeing with SpaceX. This is a fixed-cost contract, and that's because there's some aspects of it that uh, the, risk is, the risk is known and private companies can accept that risk. Okay, so this is part of NASA's commercial crew program, and my understanding is that it um, moves the agency, NASA, closer eventually to putting the first woman in, uh, next man on the moon uh, in 2024. That's the Artemis program. Walk us through what needs to happen before that can take place. Well, those are those are some tough uh, those are some tough milestones. The first thing we need to do is to uh, uh, have the human-rated uh, vehicles uh, uh, certified by NASA, like what we're seeing today with um, with the SpaceX vehicle, and what we'll see later on this year uh, with uh, the Boeing vehicles. Um, there's uh, an entirely uh, 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 different program from the commercial crew which is the NASA uh, lunar, uh, lunar effort. Uh, for that, uh, NASA has uh, uh, released contracts to three companies, um, SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Dynatics, and each of them have a different approach to going to space. For the SpaceX program, they're actually planning on using uh, their new uh, 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 Starship vehicle, which is still under the development stage. That will also have to be uh, uh, certified for human spaceflight, and they're going to have to go through a certification process similar to what we've, uh, what um, the uh, direct, the Falcon 9 has has gone through. So there are a lot of uh, milestones to do the SpaceX mission today. We had to go through about 20 separate milestones mm. 
for human certification mm. of that vehicle. I'd imagine a separate, you know, 20 to 30 uh, milestones will have to be accomplished because it's not only just getting to low Earth orbit, but then uh, the transition to a lunar a lunar orbit and then the lunar lander uh, 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 program as well. So it's it's going to be just uh, you know twice, if not three times, as complicated as uh, what we've gone through uh, for uh, uh, for uh, uh, this mission with SpaceX and also with Boeing. So, Sean, I mean, from in terms of the manned spaceflight, then, I mean, what is sort of the longer term ambition here? Because we geek out over this stuff. It's obviously just an amazing feat of uh, a human uh, ingenuity here. But is there sort of a practical reason why we're going back to the moon, why we're looking to go maybe even beyond the moon? Sure. Uh, I think uh, a lot of those reasons are for uh, uh, commercially motivated. NASA has just recently started a uh, LEO commercialization, low-Earth orbit, commercialization of low-Earth orbit. Uh, The International Space Station is a destination for both uh, governments and companies to operate um, in a microgravity uh, environment. NASA is looking at a wide variety of companies that include uh, the usual suspects that are uh, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, but also includes Blue Origin and Sierra Nevada and some new entrants like NanoRacks and Axiom that are looking to build um, either modules that attach to the ISS or free-flying modules. Um, those uh, platforms will serve as uh, anchor points for uh, more human operation in in low Earth orbit. So this is something that comes out of our existing work on the International Space Station, and just pushes it into uh, into the commercial sector. As for going back to the moon, well, there are a lot of things. If you talk to the uh, mineralogists and you know people out of the oil and gas industry, they they will tell you that you really only know uh, just a rudimentary uh, rudimentary number of things about the lunar environment and what the resources are right. that are uh, embedded within the lunar surface. So um, that's that's certainly more of a stretch, but it's very important that we go yeah. back to the moon in order to prove out those models. The coronavirus pandemic rapidly changed the way we work, with companies being forced to shift their employees to remote setups, like this podcast. We spoke about this labor market change with Adam Ozemek, chief economist at Upwork. Adam surveyed 1,500 hiring managers before and after the virus outbreak and published a report that investigates the long-term impacts of this remote work experiment and what we can anticipate in the future. He joined us to share his findings. I think it's not really surprising that a lot of workers enjoy working from home. Um, it, you know, it's less commute. It, uh, they don't have to get up as early in the morning. They don't have to uh, wear a suit. But I think what, what makes our survey really interesting is we ask the decision makers. We ask the people who are going to be deciding what the remote work hiring looks like in the future, how the experience has gone for them. And 56% said it's gone better than expected. So that was really the, the most important message out of this is that we have undergone a gigantic labor market experiment in remote working, and for more than half, it's working better than they expected, and only about one out of ten has been working less well than they expected. Maybe expectations were really low, um, Adam. Why do you think there was so much suspicion that working from home would lead to a huge drop in productivity? Was there actual evidence uh, that people were relying on, or was it the old-school conviction that 
put a premium on FaceTime and uh, first into the office, last out of the office? You know, I think uh, when you're talking about working in a kind of totally different way that people are just hesitant to make the jump sometimes. And I think also if what they're doing now works for them, you don't want to be the one who suggests to the company to make a big change and then it doesn't work and then you've kind of got egg in your face. So, you know, what we hear from a lot of Upwork clients who are talking about going remote or thinking about going remote is that there's a lot of status quo bias in, in companies. And obviously that's truer for bigger companies are sort of more comfortable working the way they are. Um, smaller companies have always been more comfortable taking the risk, trying a new way of doing things. And so, you know, this is something we've been seeing with Upwork clients for 20 years is that there's, you know, you, there's a hesitance to go remote, uh, especially when the status quo is working. But once you do it, uh, you see a lot of really big, important benefits. Have you seen uh, in, in the surveys uh, that you've done, Adam, have you seen any sort of commentary with regards to costs, whether uh, employers think that the remote work uh, for a longer period of time might be more cost effective or more expensive? So that's what's really interesting about this is that we've had such a positive response from hiring managers, even though a lot of the benefits for remote work uh, tend to accumulate in the long run. So when you go remote, that means you are no longer limited to just hiring in your local labor market. You can hire anywhere you want. All of a sudden, you know, labor markets all over the U.S. are open to you. You can hire talent no matter where it lives. And um, that's a benefit that, that they're not really seeing yet when they're just sort of short-term transitioning their team. So I think that as they, you know, continue to work remote, which a lot of them are going to, and they experience that, you know, you can hire uh, remote workers all over the U.S. You're not just tied to what are often very high cost of living labor markets. They are going to see cost benefits from that. And it, that, that doesn't mean workers are even necessarily any worse off because, you know, when you live in San Francisco, it's true, you might make more than a programmer who lives in Cleveland. But, you know, a lot of that is eaten up by high housing costs. So I think when, you know, these companies are able to, truly look at the U.S. as like one giant labor market for some skills, mm -hmm. and they can hire workers wherever they are, I think workers and businesses are going to see, uh, you know, costs go down. And that's a really good point. Connor Sen, one of our Bloomberg Opinion columnists, wrote that Facebook is really pro-remote work right now, but a big reason is because um, eventually it can hire more people from outside Silicon Valley and pay them lower wages because the cost of living is so much lower. Do you think that's why these technology companies are so eager to jump on the work-from-home bandwagon because the goal overall is to bring down their, uh, their expenses when it comes to compensation? You know, I think that that's part of the story, but that ignores a lot of really important benefits that we saw in our survey. So the number one benefit they saw was uh, a lack of commute. You also had fewer unnecessary meetings uh, re and reduced distractions at the office. And also, for one-third, productivity went up. So even before you start talking about cost savings from hiring workers yeah. in places where housing is less expensive, you have these really direct, immediate benefits that – for some companies, and again, it doesn't have to be for all companies. As long as it's for some, that can mean a really big increase in remote work. For some companies, and a significant percent of them, they're seeing lots of direct immediate benefits just from the workers, how, how they work together now. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.